0: Good morning. It's always a blessing to fellowship with people I've known for many years and uh, people who I hope to learn to know. When Brother Earl was talking, in fact, during the devotional, my mind was racing. There are many times in my life that God redirected me. Uh, I, my father was a farmer and I was the oldest son, and he was ill. And so I did a lot of the farming from the time I was 12, and I enjoyed farming. And I hated school. That's going to surprise you. (laughs) And my father made me finish high school. I literally made me finish. And I didn't do very well in high school. I was too lazy to really study. And I was looking forward to farming. And so I got out of high school and I was all excited. Now I could finally leave these books behind and and, uh, do what I really enjoyed doing. And about less than a year after that, I was down in the field working. And I, I still cannot explain this. Um, and my parents could not explain it because they knew I did not like to study, but I felt called to be a teacher. And that was an amazing thing to me. And it was an amazing thing to them. So amazing to them that they let me go to college, which my dad was totally pretty much opposed to people doing. (laughs) So (laughs) I went to college and I'll I'll give you one more. I mean, I look back over my life and my life is just a miracle in many ways, uh, I started teaching school then, and I loved to teach, and I love to tell stories. And So you don't know the Mennonite world that I lived in, so if I said the name of the person, it wouldn't mean anything to you. But say this, he was the Greek teacher at Eastern Mennonite University. He was a radio preacher, and he was known all over the church. Uh, invited me to come on his radio program to, for the children's hour. And that really excited me because he was a big name, and here he's inviting me to join his radio program. And that's probably what I would have done. And so this is a word to you children. My parents said no. Now, I was 23 years old. I mean, I was old enough to make my own decisions. But my dad hated the radio. He grew up in a home where his mother was opposed to the radio, but his father had one. And... He said the radio is worse than the TV. The TV at least stays in the living room, but the radio goes and you can listen to the ball games and the bad music out there where you're working. And he felt the radio was a much more disastrous thing than the TV. And so when he heard that I was interested in doing a radio ministry, (laughs) the red flags went up. (laughs) And he said, John, you don't want to do this. And so I listened to my father. And I ended up at CLP, uh, Christian Life Publications, and wrote the little textbook and supervised the writing of the social studies curriculum. A few years ago, I was at the funeral of the man that invited me to do that. And I looked at the audience and I said to myself, if I had not followed my parents, these would be my people. And they were all liberal Mennonites. So I'm just trying to say that decisions are important in life, and redirecting goals is important. And let's let the older people in our life speak into our life. Uh, They have a perspective that we need to hear when we're young people. So I'll give that for whatever it's worth. This morning, I want you to turn to Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 to 24. The title of the message this morning is A Call to Arms. Now, I'm a 76-year-old man, and I've seen an awful lot in my lifetime, and I've given you just a little slice of my own life, and I have seen many people make absolute shipwreck of their spiritual life. This passage is not an understatement of the battle that we face. It's credited to Thomas Jefferson that he said, and I don't think you can prove that he said this, it's not anywhere in his writings, the price of liberty... Is, does anybody know what that statement is? The price of liberty is eternal vigilance. And Paul says the same thing. He says the price of truth is eternal vigilance. Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion, walketh about seeking whom he may devour, whom resist steadfast. In the faith, that's First Peter, I'm sorry, that's, that's Peter, not Paul. First Peter 5, verses 8 and 9. Let me talk a little bit about the reality that happens if you're not vigilant. I grew up a conference Mennonite, mainstream Mennonite, very conservative mainstream Mennonite, Chambersburg Mennonite Church. It was a large congregation, attendance on Sunday morning, usually around 300. And there were probably 20 young boys, give or take two years my age, a large youth group. I know of only one of those boys that you could really say is following the Lord. He was my best friend. And he's in our community, still a very plain conservative Mennonite. The rest of them divorced and remarried, ended up in evangelical churches, some of them went off to war. Uh, just a tragic story of those 19 young people that I grew up with. Aaron Shank, who some of you may know at least the name, had meetings in our church several times, Chambersburg Mennonite Church. And one uh, series of meetings that he had, I had gotten a tape recorder and I, the old reel-to-reel kind. If some of you don't remember those, <laughs> and I recorded all his messages. And then my mother, uh, 30 years later, wanted to hear those messages again, but they were on reel-to-reel tapes, and she didn't have a reel-to-reel tape recorder. So she said, John, would you transcribe those tapes and put them on cassettes? Well, I was a typesetter at the time, and that was mindless, uh, keyboarding uh, stuff into computer programs. And so I borrowed, uh, somebody still had one of those machines that still worked. I borrowed one of them, and I... Uh, had a cassette player and, and, I, and I could listen to the sermons while I was uh, transcribing them. And the interesting thing about that, those meetings was Aaron Shank every, mo- every evening gave the list of the names of the people who had responded the night before. And it was about a total of about 30 people had responded in those meetings. And here I was hearing those names 30 years later. And I knew all of them. And I basically knew what had happened to most of them. And again, almost none of them, 30 years later, were following Christ. So this warning that Paul is giving is a very real warning. Let me tell you a very shocking situation. How many recognize the name? You probably won't, but I'm curious if anybody here recognizes the name Howard Hammer. Nobody. Well, Howard Hammer was the first mass evangelist, tent evangelist in the Mennonite Church. It was George R. Brunk's hero. Howard Hammer was the person George R. Brunk wanted to be. And Myron Augsburger and all the other mass evangelists that came after them. What happened to Howard Hammer? Well, he got involved in some Spanish work and ended up with a Spanish mistress. And the end of that was he finally shot her and himself committed suicide. That rocked the Mennonite world, that this man who was such a dynamic evangelist and preacher of the gospel would come to such a disastrous end. I'm just giving you some some very sobering things of what can happen if we are not eternally vigilant and watching carefully. Let's talk about some corporate apostasy. The church from the beginning preached non resistance. And for 200 years, that was the practice of the church. Tertullian, one of the early church fathers, said when Peter said, when God, Jesus told Peter, put your sword in its sheath, he sheathed the sword of every man, every Christian. And for 200 years, the church obeyed that. And then in about AD 174, somewhere, There was a compromise and a soldier was taken into the church. And that compromise grew over the next hundred years until finally in 313, we have the conversion in quotes of Constantine and baptized his whole army into the church. And that opened up that whole compromise, opened up a Pandora's box that plagues us to this day. I hear it all the time whenever I'm. Talking on the telephone to people call from the billboard. Oh, but Christians, look at the horrible history they have. Yes. Because of that compromise, you have Christians going to Jerusalem to kill Muslims. You have the Inquisition and and other situations where Christians tortured Christians and burned them at the stake. You have the conquest of the Native Americans in the name of Jesus. You have the enslavement of blacks preached from the pulpits from the Bible. You have the war to end that slavery where tens of thousands of Christians killed each other on both sides. You have the conquest and all the massacres of Latin America by the Roman Catholic Church or by people who belong to that church in the name of Christ. You have all the wars of Western Europe up until about 150 years ago where Christians fought each other and, and horrible wars. All because this one important teaching of Jesus was lost, And interestingly enough, many of your revival groups reclaim that teaching. The Pentecostals, the Assembly of God, that was born there in Azusa Street in the first decade of the last century, were non-resistant at the beginning. Did you know that the Pentecostals were non-resistant in the beginning of their history? Did you know that George Mueller and John Darby and the Plymouth Brethren were non-resistant at the beginning? Did you know that the Church of Christ in its beginning was non-resistant? I asked a uh, Plymouth Brethren preacher that seemed to know the history of their people. I said, well, are you aware that you people were non-resistant at the beginning of your history? Yeah, yeah, he knew that. Well, what happened? Now, listen to this answer. Oh, John, those difficult teachings of Christ, they just get lost. What? Yes, God help us. But it can happen to us. I've seen it happen. I'm a 76-year-old man. I've seen it happen to groups of people over and over and over again. And I don't want it to happen to you people. <laughs> so that's why I'm preaching this message. Well, that's not the end of my stories. How many have heard of the Waldensians? Okay, the Waldensians began in the 12th century. 1176 is uh, the date of Peter Waldo. And that church was faithful for 350 years. For 350 years, they stood basically alone against all that was arrayed against them. Tremendous persecution. And they were non-resistant. And they held to a real Sermon on the Mount concept of the Bible. And then when the Reformation occurred, one of John Calvin's men, Guillaume Ferrell, went down to the Piedmont, northern Italy, to meet with these people and said, look, Your days of persecution are over. Join us. We will defend you. Well, there were a couple old men that said, no. These people are not non-resistant. These people have a wrong theology. We should not join them. But they they were outspoken, and the whole group joined them. And just like that, 350 years of beautiful history was annihilated. I visited Torre Police, the the headquarters of the Waldensian Church here about three years ago with Heinrich and Candace. And that was very interesting to me. He knew his history well. The persecution did not end. What happened is the persecution ended, but they got involved in the holy wars of the Protestants against the Catholics, and they had a horrible, bloody history after that. They didn't gain anything, and they lost everything. This is really on my heart. It really is. The Christian life is not a sprint. I've known many people in the charity movement who were all excited in some meetings and got all excited and were passing out tapes and were all excited about the gospel. And I met them ten years later. It was all over. And some of you have seen that too. The Christian life is not a sprint. It's not how high you jump or how. <laughs> It's how long you stay in the race. <laughs> and it's a marathon. And it's a difficult marathon. I could tell you the many pl- times in my life where I could have just made a little bit of adjustment. And I would be at an altogether different place from where I am today. It's not a sprint. It's not a brief skirmish with the devil. It is constant hand-to-hand combat with the enemy of our souls and the enemy of our churches. And Paul pictures it in Ephesians six, ten to 24 As daily hand-to-hand combat. And I'd like to read that passage now. Verse 10 of chapter 6. Finally, I want to stop there for just a little bit. (laughs) You know, Paul could have ended his book before this. He had just told us the tremendous resources that God has given us. Is there a marker here somewhere? Ah, sure enough. In the first chapter, he says, God has blessed us with all spiritual blessings in the heavenly places. So this is heaven. And what's there? Well, it's God with all His supernatural wisdom, all His supernatural power, all His supernatural love, all His supernatural forgiveness. I mean, just, we could just make a list of all the supernatural characteristics of God. And that passage, 1st Ephesians chapter 1 verse 3 says, He has blessed us with all the spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. So here are all these blessings coming down to us. They're all available to us. Unlimited love. Don't ever say, I can't overcome this. No, wait a minute. You're hindering something because you have all the resources of heaven behind you. But I, 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 I want to make it clear that they're only behind you when you decide to do what God wants you to do. He's not going to give you supernatural blessings to go out here and do something that he doesn't want you to do. But the Bible says that his eyes run to and fro throughout the whole world to see somebody whose heart's perfect toward him, and then he dumps it all on that person. And so the secret is, Romans chapter 6, yield your members. Reckon yourself dead. Do what God wants you to do, and all of heaven will give you success. So Paul is, I love that first chapter. I don't know if I ever preached that one to you or not. That's my favorite sermon. But anyway, that's a fabulous chapter of all the resources God chose us, Christ redeemed us, the Holy Spirit sealed us, and he dumped all his resources on the church, which is the fullness of his body, the fullness of the person who fills everything, is here this morning, in this body. You have, that's the first chapter. Then he talks about the reconciliation of the Jew with the Gentile to create this new body, this, this church, this kingdom of God, this little colony of heaven on earth, demonstrating what the whole world would look like if everybody obeyed Jesus. That's what you're supposed to be doing, by the way. This is to be the ideal society that God always wanted, that the world knows nothing about unless he sees it here. And then we go into the next chapters and we have the reconciliation of parents with children Employees with employee, employers with employees and all this wonderful teaching. And Paul gets to the end and he realizes, I better not end this book yet. I'm here chained to these two soldiers. This is a battle. So he says, finally. So let's read it. Finally, finally, my brother, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God, that ye may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Wherefore, because this battle is so powerfully arrayed against a powerful enemy, wherefore, Take unto you the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand in the evil day and having done all to stand. Stand therefore, having your loins girt about with truth, having on the breastplate of righteousness and your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel peace. And above all, taking the shield of faith wherewith ye shall be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God praying always with all prayer and supplication in the spirit and watching thereto with all perseverance and supplication for all saints and for me that utterance may be given unto me that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in bonds, that I, therein I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. All right. This is St. Patrick's prayer about the resources that we are standing in the middle of if we're standing in the will of God. I arise today through the strength of heaven, light of the sun, splendor of fire, speed of lightning. He's talking about all the powerful manifestations of God. Swiftness swiftness of the wind, depth of the sea, stability of the earth, firmness of the rock. I arise today through God's strength to pilot me, God's might to uphold me, God's wisdom to guide me, God's eye to look before me, God's ear to hear me, God's word to speak to me, God's hand to guard me, God's way to lie before me, God's shield to protect me, God's host to save me from afar and near, alone or in a multitude. Christ shield me today against wounding. Christ with me, Christ before me, Christ behind me, Christ in me, Christ beneath me, Christ above me, Christ on my right, Christ on my left. Christ, when I lie down, Christ, when I sit down, Christ in the heart of everyone who thinks of me, Christ in the mouth of everyone who speaks of me, Christ in the eye that sees me, Christ in the ear that hears me, I arise today through the might and strength of the Lord of creation. That was the mentality Patrick had when he went out with the gospel. And the Bible says, with all saints, we comprehend what is the breadth and depth and length and height of God's love. And that's important because we have too many people today who think they can make it alone. People call me from the billboards and they say, I'm, lo- uh, I'm, I'm losing the battle or I've fallen into deep sin. And the first question I ask is, do you have a church? No. What kind of relationship do you have with your parents? Ah, bad. Brothers and sisters. And I find out that they are fighting this battle by themselves. And I'll guarantee you one thing. If you do not link arms with all the other Christians, especially the brothers and sisters in your church, I can almost guarantee you will lose. I gave you that sad history of the church I grew up in. We need each other. Paul says to the Philippians. (laughs) He says, I know you're going to win. And I, I always wondered how in the world Paul was so, he said, I, I know that he th- has begun a good work and he's going to do a good work to the day of Christ. And I used to read that and say, I've seen so many people that made shipwreck. How could Paul be so confident? But then I kept reading and he says, you are contributing to me and you are partakers of my grace. Paul says, we're in this together and I am sure you're going to win because you've linked arms with the rest of us. So, this is a great cosmic clash between two violently opposed kingdoms. And Paul says, take it from me. This is a battle. Let me read Paul's testimony. Are they ministers of Christ? I speak as a fool. i more. Now, listen to this list. In labors, more abundant. In stripes, above measure. In prisons, more frequent. In deaths, oft. Of the Jews, five times received I forty stripes, save one. Thrice was I beaten with rods. Once was I stoned. Thrice I suffered shipwreck. A night and a day I have been in the deep, journeying in journeys off. In perils of waters, in perils of robbers, in perils of mine own countrymen, in perils by the heathen, in perils in the city, in perils in the wilderness, in perils in the sea, in perils among false brethren, in weariness and painfulness, in watchings off, in hunger and thirst, in fastings often, in cold and nakedness. That's Paul. Where is the complacent person? He he, he cannot win. This is a battle. And Paul's talking about it was a battle on every level. Food. Safety. <coughs> All right. He says, I had enemies without and within. Not only I have enemies out there, I had enemies here. I had to fight a battle with my own desires. I therefore so run, not as uncertainly, so fight I not as one that beateth the air. But I keep under my body and bring it into subjection, lest by any means when I have preached to others, I myself should be a castaway. So I hope I've convinced you that this is a long battle and you have to be vigilant every moment of every day and you can't let the devil get the upper hand in your life. There are three enemies. The world, the flesh, and the devil. What is the world? The world is a whole universe of evil, and it's all interconnected. It's impiety. It's materialism. It's violence. It's dishonesty. And it's impurity. It's all part of one system. And those things are all working together. It's the flesh. What's the flesh? Those are the inordinate desires. All of our desires are legitimate. Every one of them. But the devil twists even the desire to have an influence. The Bible says we're to be the salt of the earth and God gave us the desire to be that. But the devil perverts it and people try to grab onto power for themselves. All of our desires are legitimate. But the lust of the flesh is when one of those desires gets out of control. We know what happens when the desire for eating gets out of control. And some of us are fighting that battle. Oh, uh, and it's it, 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 everyone will tell you it's bad for your health. It's bad in every way. Get your get your eating under control. <clears throat> so I like to illustrate with uh with the beds we sleep in. Are you aware? And I'm, I just want to show you what happens. Are you aware that most of the world doesn't sleep in beds? How many of you have been to Africa? Do they have beds like we have bedrooms? Yes or no? Most of them live in a little hut where there's no room for any bed. They have, them ro- they have mats rolled up under the table or under the chairs or whatever, and they roll those out and sleep on the floor. So your bed is something rare. Very few people sleep in a bed like you sleep in. And so when I go to bed, I think every time, whew, this is really a luxury. But see, if we're not careful, that's not enough. It has to be a bedroom suit. It has to be an impressive bedroom suit. It has to be a special mattress that you pay hundreds of dollars for. And that's how the lust of the flesh goes. You understand what I'm saying? And you can carry that into every area of life. You you have a little bit of comfort for the flesh. And then it becomes a whole world of its own. That God never intended. So when I go to bed, I say, this is a luxury. I bought this bedroom suit for, I think, $25 when I got married. I bought a good mattress. And it's that's a luxury. I don't have an expensive bedroom suit. That was used. It had to be painted. It was scratched. <laughs> oh, and I'm not bragging. I'm just simply saying you have to make conscious decisions. Somebody talked about fasting this morning. I'm not going to talk about fasting, but I will say this. I've come to call fasting the reset button. It's you, it, so food keeps going and going and going, and you finally say, I'm not going to eat anything. I'm going to set this thing back. And then after I haven't eaten for three or four days, I won't have to go to some gourmet restaurant. I will be just delighted with potatoes, with, even without any salt. Follow me? So I think we need to fast in every area of our life, every now and then, push the reset button. And say, whoop, going to stop this. I'm going to sleep on the floor tonight. (laughs) Then I'll enjoy this humble bed that I have and won't be dreaming about bedroom suits and special mattresses. I hope you understand what I'm saying. That's the flesh. And the devil, who uses both the world and the flesh to destroy Casual, complacent Christians who are just drifting along and they have to have hot sermons and, and people around them to give them a push and pick them up and kick them on their way and dust off their trousers and keep them going or they don't succeed. They'll lose. They'll lose eventually when they don't have enough support around them and enough tapes to pop in or CDs and enough hot preaching and enough meetings that get them excited. They'll lose. They, they, they will not win. The key is to be strong in the Lord. Verse 10. He is our commander. He is wise. He sees a total perspective we do not see. And when he says something, we better take him seriously. For instance, he says, do not divorce and remarry. I face that all the time. And people say, well, or or, all kinds of other things. I said, well, let me tell you something. When I was a boy growing up, And this is hard for you to believe that aren't my age, but there was literally almost no divorce and remarriage. There was one man in the greencastle Antrim community that was divorced and remarried, and he was looked down on by everybody, not just Christians. In fact, you you said it behind your hand, he's divorced and remarried. It was a shame to even talk about it. And then I lived during the change, and this is what we heard. Well, there are some homes that are so unhappy that it would be better, actually. I know what the Bible says, but it would be better if uh, we dissolved that relationship and then other relationships were formed and the parents would be happier, the children would be happier, just everything would be better. And then I asked him on the phone, is that what happened? <laughs> no, no, we have a broken society. See, God knew something. He knew why he said that. All right. He's wiser than we are. He has a, whatever he says is a perspective that has the dimensions of eternity and all the experience that you could ever put into it. It's right there. God says, if you knew everything I know, you would do this. And so we take his commands seriously because he's wiser and he's stronger than our enemy. His commands summarize for us an eternal perspective. The devil can kill, but he doesn't have the power to give life. We have resurrection power. And our victory is certain if we obey what Paul says here. And that's why I want to preach this sermon. Our serpent's head has already been bruised. He's not dead, but his head has been seriously bruised. He does not have the power that he could have. Now is the judgment of this world. Now shall the prince of the world be cast out. This is right before Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection. I beheld Satan as lightning fall from heaven. So we have an enemy that has been has been mortally wounded, and uh, there's no reason why he should win. Christ has already broken his power, and he promises to lead us all to victory if we let him be our captain. Leave no, uh, no vulnerable spot, Paul says. Only our commander sees the total perspective. And so when he speaks, we say, I often say to people on the phone, especially with the same-sex relationship, to say, well, what's the harm? There's no violence involved. It's two consenting people. They love each other. What's harmful about it? And I said, well, I'm not sure I can tell you what's harmful about it. But if God says it's not to be, then you can be sure. That is extremely devastating to get involved in it. All right. So he says, put on the whole armor. (laughs) So we want to talk about the whole armor. There are three things we need to understand. And here's the outline for my sermon. The warrior's enemy. We need to know about him. The warrior's equipment and the warrior's energy. Those are the three points. The warrior's enemy, his equipment, and his energy. So let's talk about the warrior's enemy. The intelligence corps is one of the important parts of the army. One of the most important parts. If they can figure out ahead of time what the enemy is plotting, they have the advantage. So the, the, the army has an intelligence corps. It's out there, the CIA... And there are all kinds of smaller groups. I mean, they are always determined to get every bit of evidence they can from the enemy. Spies. You all know about spies. That's what they they do. Because if you you can figure out what the enemy is going to do, you have the advantage. All right? God has given us all the important facts about the enemy. We have all the important facts about the enemy. None of us need to be in any way surprised by what he does. Here are the facts. He's the accuser of the brethren. Remember Job? I don't understand this, but somehow the devil was able to come before God and argue the case of Job. And you know what happened? Job gives us a wonderful example. I mean, he didn't understand what was happening. He said some things I wouldn't have almost dared to say about God. He says, why do you make such a big issue over my situation. You won't even let me swallow down my spit. Why don't you leave me alone, God? He said those things. But that was okay. See, God understands when we talk that way, when we're frustrated. But there's one thing Job didn't do, and that is he did not surrender his integrity before God. He said, though he slay me, yet will I trust him. And when I am tried, I shall become forth as gold. He's, he, he hung to that little thread no matter what else was happening. So the devil is able to do that. He's able to do something like he did to Job. He's an adversary. He uses murder. He uses lies. John eight forty four. One of the things he tries to convince us, and I hear this all the time from the people who call me, God is not good. I have people say, if God is who the Bible describes him to be, I, would, I, I, I have no interest in a God like that. He isn't to be trusted. That was the first temptation. He said to Eve, God is not good. He knows that that very tree he told you not to eat of, that's the one you need. And he's keeping it from you. And you can become a God if you eat of that tree. He lies. He says God is not good. And we get into situations where it seems that way. You know, why is God letting this happen to me? He takes the form of a lion. Threats by people. Going to take away your job. Going to take away your birthday. Going to take, you know, just threats against you. He takes the form of an angel. How many times have you heard somebody say, well, God told me to do, and it was something you know God would never tell anybody to do, but they are convinced that they had a dream, they had a vision, they had something where God told them to do something, and they followed through on that, and it was absolutely a lie, but it looked like, it looked, like, it looked good. It looked like something God told them. He's the God of this world. Jesus didn't dispute the devil when he said, all these kingdoms are given unto me. Jesus didn't argue that point. I really do believe that the kingdoms of this world are under his control. And he has helpers. We have them listed here. Demons. It's not just the devil. He has helpers all over the place. Despotisms. Powers. Master spirits. World rulers. Spirit forces of wickedness in heavenly place, in the heavenly sphere, believe it or not. We have a tremendous foe. But don't rem- don't forget, <laughs> he's not the strongest foe. We, we, uh, strongest person. We have the strongest person on our side. We also are told some other things about our enemy. He controls the affairs of nations. Daniel was told that that uh, uh, an angel was con- God was sending an answer to his prayer, but that answer was stopped for three solid months by the prince of the king of Persia. So Daniel was praying and praying and praying and praying. Three months he wasn't getting any answer. He didn't know why. But the prince of the king of Persia had stopped the angel that was on the way to give him the answer to his prayer. He's not only strong, he's subtle. He's crafty. Remember Joshua with the Gibeonites? Who came looking like they'd been on a long journey from a long ways off. We want to make an agreement with you. And here they were their neighbors. He does that. Let me tell you some things he says to Christians. He pits faith against works. As if those two are, ab, are, are mutually exclusive. You can have works or you can have faith. But if you try to do something, then that means you're trying to be saved by works. He, he, how many thousands of people ended up at the wrong place and with shipwreck because they bought into that one? I talk to them all the time, by the way. Sometimes they hang up on me and say... You're lost. You're going to hell. We're going to pray for you tonight because you're trying to be saved by your works. <laughs> he does that. By the way, one of the tremendous tricks of the devil is to create what I call false dichotomies. That's two things that are mutually exclusive. They can't be put together. And he tries to make us believe that there are some things that are false dichotomies that aren't. Faith and works is one of them. They are not a false dichotomy. They are a powerful unity, but they're hard to keep together. And the devil knows that. But if you can get those two together, a person who has faith and has the, has the courage to act on that faith, you have a powerful person. And so the devil tries to keep those two apart. Another one is you can have faithful churches or you can have missions. How many groups have said we're not going to have missions because if you have missions, your churches go liberal. So we're, we're going to have a faithful church. You folks can go and have missions and you'll lose you'll lose it. False dichotomy, false dichotomy, (laughs) justification and sanctification. Nobody ever separated those. Nobody ever talked about those separately until Martin Luther. In fact, the interesting one on that one is one Corinthians six eleven, where it says after a whole list of things that don't belong to the kingdom of God, it says, but such were some of you now listen to the order here, but you are sanctified, you're justified. Wait a minute. Earl, I thought sanctification came after justification. I'll let you discuss that one. (laughs) But the devil wants to separate those two. He wants to separate them. They borrow from Protestant methods and Protestant lingo. We had a whole century of save me preaching. It's all about getting saved and going to heaven and escaping hell, and it is that. I don't want you to misunderstand me. That's a serious concern, but that's not where Jesus' focus was. He didn't say repent if you want to go to heaven. He said repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, and he always talked about the gospel as the gospel of the kingdom, but we lost it in the last century greatly. Revival preaching was almost all save me preaching. The gospel song was written for the revivals that the Methodists had in the South. And almost all of those are about getting saved and going to heaven, how wonderful heaven's going to be. And that is part of our theology, but it became the almost the entire theology, and the king the gospel of the kingdom was pretty much obliterated. And then, we, of course, we had dispensationalism and premillennialism that put the kingdom in the future. Those three things robbed the church of a real kingdom concept of the gospel. Some people confuse excitement. With the moving of the Holy Spirit. I used to go to Shippensburg University about once a year to speak to the Christian Fellowship there. And before I had my talk, they'd have a a worship team get up. Oh, my dear. You talk about people that were excited and you talk about noise. In fact, they made so much noise and so much confusion. By the time I got up, I'd almost lost my inspiration. But they thought that was spirituality. They thought that was spiritual vitality. Confused excitement with the movement of the Holy Spirit. And that often happened in the revival movement, too. People got all excited and they thought that was a moving of the Holy Spirit and it was just the rumblings of their stomach. Another one... <laughs> Another one is we need to teach principles and we need to teach our beliefs and we need to teach doctrine but we don't want to have a uniform expression. We don't want, we don't want uniformity. We do not want... Uh, uh, whatever that is. We don't want that. We want to let every person take the principles we teach and apply it in their own way. And then they'll be, that'll be vital because that'll be coming from within. It won't be imposed by the church. That really sounds good, doesn't it? But you know what you just said? We're going to make the practice of Christianity individualistic. And then 30 years later or less, we're going to start crying that everybody's individualistic Nobody wants to listen to anybody. We can't have any unity. We can't ever decide anything as a church because everybody's doing their own thing. Well, that doctrine created it. Teach the principles and then let's have a great variety. Of ex- By the way, where does the Bible talk about celebrating variety? I think the Bible celebrates unity. People have their act together. Well, anyway, that's I preached that the last time I was here. Champion variety rather than oneness of faith. Or say that worldly fashion, ah, the clothes I'm wearing, that didn't come from the world. It's just a matter of taste. Yeah, okay. Take a hard look at the Brethren in Christ. Take a hard look at the Church of the Brethren. Go read their history. They say when we relaxed our church standards, our uniform practices, we opened a Pandora's box. Both of those groups, and I lived long enough to see it happen. I remember when the Brethren in Christ were plainer almost than the Mennonites. I remember when the Church of the Brethren was very plain. In fact, I had a Church of the Brethren music teacher in public school. And she wanted to get a group of us together to put us on television because we had a fourth grade class. So there were enough Mennonites in there. We had three parts singing in fourth grade, which was unusual in public school. And the music teacher said, this is great. I'm going to put this on TV till my dad heard about it. And then she made an interesting statement. This is Church of the Brethren. Mainline Church of the Brethren. She said, my family is the only family in our church that has TV and our pastor is opposed to TV. That's Church of the Brethren. They had standards in those days. In fact, we, you want to talk about the uh, Pentecostals? That was a holiness movement. I remember when their women were not permitted to cut their hair. They thought the long hair was the covering. Their church was the last church to let women wear slacks. Their church was the last church... To let their people have TVs. They had standards. They had things they did together. We are not to be ignorant of his devices. He masquerades as an angel of light. Usually in the form of Christianity. And that's always backed up by convincing arguments. By scriptural theology. But if you look carefully. The theology comes from the epistles. Not from the gospels. See we Anabaptists have always said. Not that the Gospels are more important than the Epistles, but the Gospels are the primary revelation and everything else has to be understood on the basis of what Jesus actually said and did. That was our that was our concept of Christianity. So when you go to the Epistles and they start putting a spin on things, you say, no, wait a minute. Did Jesus actually say that? No. Well, then you have a wrong interpretation. You follow me? So you end up with what Dean Taylor calls salvation by theology. You get all your theology right and somehow that makes you a good Christian. No, 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 no. No. We, we're not interested. In fact, I've learned to have a very healthy suspicion of systematic theology. Now, we all have a theology. It's what we believe about God. God. But I'm talking about this stuff where you get a verse here and a verse there and a verse here and a verse there from the epistles especially and you come up with a a defense for war or you come up with a defense for divorce and remarriage or you come up for a defense of who knows what all, materialism, accumulation of wealth. Wait a minute. I'm not interested in that kind of systematic theology. I want to focus on Jesus. I want to focus on what he said and what he did and then anything else in the scriptures, Old Testament included, has to be understood. In fact, the Anabaptists had a quote. They said, if you if you hear anything, any interpretation of scripture that contradicts anything Jesus ever said and did, it is a false interpretation. The devil blinds people to the truth. Many, many, mighty men have fallen. Even Abraham, Moses, David were tricked by this enemy. So Paul says, use all your arms and stand your guard. I hope I've convinced you that this is not something to just drift along and whatever the church is doing and other Christians and so on. No, 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 nothing like that at all. So let's talk about, that was the warrior's enemy. Let's talk about the warrior's equipment. The first thing he talks about is the girdle of truth. Well, the girdle gathered up all the loose ends. If you were going to run, you pulled up your your, uh, toga or your uh, robe, tucked it in, And uh, made sure that it wasn't going to trip you. Integrity. The most important thing in a person's life is his integrity. It gathers up the loose ends. It doesn't let the mind go wandering all over it. It has a concept of what it really means to be a Christian. And it's integrity. Integrity has the word integrate. The opposite of integrity is the word disintegrate. And so he says... The truth will integrate. And Jesus said, it said of Jesus, the truth is in Jesus. I mean, he is our captain. <laughs> and I, in all my life, just keep my focus. What did Jesus think? What did Jesus do? What did he do with, with material things? What did he do with all the issues that came to him? Integrity. Falsehood fragments. Dishonesty disintegrates. Eagerly and tenaciously grasp onto every truth from God that you get and act upon it. And don't let it go. How do you let it go? You let it go by rationalizing. And some people think that rationalizing is thinking. Uh Uh There's a big difference between thinking. Thinking is about real things and real conclusions. Rationalizing is a very questionable discussion about something that... It's just trying to make yourself believe what you want to believe. Okay? And there's a lot of that today. A lot of that today. All right? <clears throat> so the girdle of truth. It's been my practice all through my life. If I heard a truth and it's sunk in as, hey, here is, here is something I need to believe. Here's something I need to practice. It has been my purpose to get a hold of that and not let it go. Number two, the breastplate of righteousness. Did you know that right living is a protection to your heart? See, the breastplate protects the heart. My favorite verse in the Old Testament. Keep thy heart, the seat of desire, with all diligence, for out of it are the issues of life. Very few people go on and read those verses after Proverbs 4.23, but I'll tell you what they say. Be careful what you see. It's a little song we sing in Sunday school. Be careful what you say. Be careful where you go with your feet, because every action you have creates a desire. If I had never eaten ice cream, and it would be wonderful if that had never happened, I would not have a desire for ice cream. But once you have eaten ice cream, you have a desire. And if you do it every night for quite a few years, you have an overwhelming desire. (laughs) Because everything we do... Reinforces that desire to get stronger and stronger and stronger and stronger. And so the breastplate of righteousness, right living, protects your desires, protects your heart. Okay? E. Stanley Jones had a quote that I put on my school wall one time, and it probably created the greatest controversy of anything I ever put on the wall of my schoolroom. And here's the quote It is easier to act your way into right thinking. Than it is to think your way into right acting. <laughs> but you stop and think about it. My parents made me do certain things that I did not understand. And then I got to be about 25 and 20, in my uh, middle 20s. After doing that all those years, I after a while found myself you know what? I see now why Dad said that. I had acted my way into right thinking. I'm not saying that's true totally, but uh, that's E. Stanley Jones. It's easier to act your way into right living than to think your way, way into right acting. So put on the breastplate of righteousness. Be careful about what you see. Be careful about where you go. Be careful about what you say because we tend to carry, if we make big statements, then we have to stand by them. And that, that really gets us off course if we're not careful. So be careful what you say. The next one he gives us is the gospel of peace to protect your feet. Well, no, you can't fight a battle if your feet are wounded. So warriors always went to great pains to make sure their feet were protected. Because once, you, once your feet are wounded, you go down. There's nothing you can do if your feet are wounded. And it's the gospel of peace. Let the peace of God rule in your heart. Whatsoever is not of faith is sin. If you don't know all the reasons but this, you just, you don't have peace about it. Don't do it. Don't do it. Let the peace of God rule in your heart. And also keep peace with everybody. The fruit of righteousness, this is a verse that took me a long time to digest, and I'm still trying to digest it. The fruit of righteousness is sown in peace of them that make peace. I grew up thinking that in order to have the fruit of righteousness, you had to have a major fracas every now and then with some brother or, from the, or something, some upheaval in the church. That's what I grew up with. And the Bible says, no, 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 no. The fruit of righteousness is sown in peace that make peace. Now, there may be a tremendous fight, but you won't be part of it. They'll burn you at the stake. And that's a tremendous violent uh, experience, of course. But the person standing there is singing and blessing his enemies. He's not fighting. The fight is all one. By the way, how many have ever heard the statement, it takes two to fight? That's false. It usually does, but it doesn't have to. There can be a one-sided fight. And that's what he's saying. Let the gospel of peace be in your heart. And if there's a fight, now that doesn't mean you don't stand for the truth. I just said it yesterday to somebody. I think it was on strength to strength. You might say some things that hurt, but make sure that it's what you said that hurts, not the way you said it. Do you understand what I'm saying? Make sure that when it's all said and done. In fact, Jesus said, I don't judge anybody. He says, I never will judge anybody. I'll never condemn anybody. The words that I speak will judge. Now, you say, well, didn't Jesus lash out at those uh, uh, Pharisees and say, you're vipers? Did you ever consider how he might have said those? We just assume because those are strong words, he was really giving it to them. I think he was probably weeping. Oh, generation of vipers. Oh, how can I help you? Because at the end of the chapter, it says he's weeping over the city. There's no place in the Christian life for Christians to be fighting. In fact, if you go to James chapter 4, where he's discussing uh, uh, people fighting against each other, right smack in the middle of that passage, he says, don't you know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Oh, so fighting is worldly. Stop and think about it. It is. That's how the world resolves its problems, by fighting. How many have ever heard a sermon on worldliness where they said fighting is worldliness? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> well it is James chapter 4 says if you're fighting your brother that's friendship with the world and that's and you're fighting God that's who you're fighting now that's been a hard one for me to learn because everything I grew up with is, is would say that's not the way you, you get things resolved peace with God opens up clear direction I'm quoting from 1 John chapter 2 he that loveth his brother listen to this he that loveth his brother abideth in the light And there is none occasion of stumbling in him. Really? So every time you stumble, it's because of some situation where you don't love somebody. Stop and think about it. If you lie, you're not loving the person you lied to. If you're committing fornication, you don't really love the girl. If you steal, obviously you don't love somebody. You stop and think about it. Every sin has to do with a bad relationship. Everyone. And and John is saying, if you love your brother, there's no occasion you will ever stumble. Now, we don't do that perfectly, I know. But that's the ideal. If you could have the right relationship with everybody, there'd be no way the devil could ever trip you up. But then he goes on to say, He that hateth his brothers in darkness, and walketh in darkness, and knoweth not whither he goeth, because that darkness has blinded his eyes. That's why we don't get involved in politics. One of the many reasons I could give a whole sermon on it. But it's competition. It's fighting. Christians have no business getting involved in something like that. Near the end of his life, the exiled Emperor Napoleon came to the following conclusion. Alexander the Great, Caesar, Charlemagne, and myself. We all founded empires, but on what did we rest the creations of our genius? Upon sheer force. Jesus Christ is the only person who founded an empire on love. And at this hour, millions of people would die for him. Love is stronger than hate. And then he says, above all, take the shield of faith. What is faith? Well, there's a little acronym forsaking All I trust him. Whatever he says. It's that song, trust and obey. If you don't obey, you don't trust. If you don't trust, you won't obey. That's a very powerful little song. Trust and obey. There's no other way. But we never can prove the delights of his love to all on the altar we lay. For the favor he shows and the joy he bestows are only for those who trust and obey. Take the shield of faith. Trust what God has said and obey explicitly. That's the best way I can uh, describe that. What did Jesus actually say about the saint's security? What did Jesus actually... He said, he that endures to the end shall be saved. That's what he actually said. What did he say about wealth? What did he say is the evidence of the Holy Spirit? Did Jesus ever... Mentioned anything about speaking in tongues? Well, then if you go to Ephesians and that's what you make out of it, then you're you're really uh, back to what I said. What did Jesus actually say? He talked about the Spirit directing us, giving us power, revealing the will of God to us. That's how he talked about the Holy Spirit. Do we interpret Scripture? I don't think so. I think we obey Scripture. Now, sometimes I, we have to do a little bit of work to understand, but uh, there's too much made over interpreting scripture. How do you how do you interpret oh, love your enemy? I don't know how you would bayonet somebody lovingly. I, I don't know how you would do that. Then he says, take the helmet of salvation. Now, salvation is means to salvage. All right. The mind is the key. The mind is the key. So protect the head. Protect your mind. The Bible says get knowledge. And with all your knowledge, get understanding. We are transformed by the renewing. This is very important that we think right. In fact, when it says be renewed by the spirit of your mind, did you ever notice the very first thing it says after that? Let no man think. That's the mind. This is the first evidence of the renewed mind. Let no man think of himself more highly than he ought to think. Ooh, Humility. So if you want to see a truly educated person that's thinking right, it's an humble person. All my life I've heard people say, well, he has too much education. Look how proud he is. I said, no, wait a minute. His problem is he doesn't have enough education. If he truly had an educated mind, he would be humble. People who really are educated are humble people. Sir Isaac Newton, the father of modern science. What did he have to say about all his accomplishments? He said, I was like a a person walking on the seashore, picking up a few shells to examine. And the whole seashore was full of shells that I did not know anything about. The little boy went to Sunday school and he sang, Twinkle, Twinkle Little Star, how I wonder what you are. Then he went to high school and he had one chapter in his physical science book on astronomy. And then he walked out and said, Twinkle, Twinkle Little Star, now I know what you are. And then he went to college and got a Ph.D. in astronomy. And then he went out and said, Twinkle, twinkle, little star. I still wonder what you are. Take the helmet of faith. What God says will discipline your thinking so it's right and you will be humble. Uh, I'm sorry, the helmet of salvation is what we're talking about. And finally, he says, take the sword of the spirit. This is the only offensive weapon. Learn how to use this well. It's just amazing. But if, if we are talking to people, we're tempted to give all kinds of reasons as answers to their questions. But we as a phone team have learned that the best thing we can do is just keep quoting scripture. Keep quoting scripture. This is, this is supernatural information. And it will have far greater effect on people than anything we can reason to, to say to them. So learn to use that. This. For the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit. The joints of the marrow and is the discerning thoughts of the, of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Fill the memory with God's supernatural words. It says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Okay. In fact, did you ever think about it before we had the printed text? People didn't have a Bible. There was no printing press. It had to be copied by hand. And to copy the whole Bible, a scribe, they said it took a whole year to copy the whole Bible. So what do you get paid in a year? That's what you would have paid for a whole copy of the Bible. Almost nobody had one. They had little portions of Scripture that they passed around. And when you had a portion, you basically tried to memorize it because it would be passed on. And maybe you get another portion. So lots of Bible memory. In fact, you read amazing Feats by the Waldensians. I read one time there was a Waldensian met somebody witness. Somebody said he met a Waldensian at a crossroads somewhere. He was walking along and the Waldensian stood there and quoted to him the entire book of Job. Can you imagine? Well, that was the only way that you could have this is to memorize whatever portion you happen to get in your hand and then pass it on to somebody else. And we've become really lazy at having this dwell in us richly. Merle Florey, you maybe don't know him. He worked as Raymond Burkholder. As a young man, he, he, he became very concerned that we were soon going to lose the availability of this book. He, he thought things were getting to the place where we finally wouldn't have copies of this. And they tell me, I never asked Merle this, they tell me that he got diligent and memorized almost the entire New Testament so that he would not lose it. The sword of the Spirit is this. Fill your memory with it. Learn it. Be able to quote it. Be able to apply it. And finally, the warrior's energy. I must close this message. Prayer is the energy that enables the Christian to wear the armor and wield the sword. When Amalek attacked, Joshua was there in the valley. And you know that Moses was there in constant prayer. And that was the reason for the success of the battle. And prayer is more than one kind. There's supplication. That has the idea of passion and zeal and and begging. Jacob saying, I won't go until you bless me. I'm not leaving, Lord, till you bless me. Or the Syrophoenician woman. We don't give our bread to dogs. Oh, but Lord, can't we just have the crumbs under the table? And he said, look, I haven't seen such great faith in Israel. That kind of tenacity to have a blessing. George Mueller, that great man of faith, prayed for 50 years for five friends. You'll read it in his diary. I'm not making this up. Two of them, or three of them, I forget which it was, he writes in his journal, were converted shortly before he died, after he prayed for 50 years. And somebody observed that the rest of them were converted shortly after he died, but he prayed for those men for 50 years. You see, God marks the person who keeps coming. He teaches us in two situations in the Gospels to be persistent in prayer. Now, he sometimes answers the prayer we pray once. God's a merciful God. But if you really want answers to your prayer, you beg him day and night for whatever that request is. That's supplication. Intercession is the prayer we pray for someone who can't get to God himself. This sin is standing between him and God. So we pray and get something from God for him. And it might not just be sin. Paul was saying, please pray for me. He knew that the intercession of the saints would open up resources that he could not open up on his own. And then we're to pray in the spirit. Not what I want. But what the Holy Spirit prompts me to pray for. This isn't about getting God's will done on man's will done on earth. It's getting God's will done on earth. I'm sorry. It's not about getting man's will done in heaven. It's about getting God's will done on earth. And the Romans tells us that the Holy Spirit, he, he, he uh, interprets our prayers to God. It says the Holy Spirit intercedes for us according to the will of God. So I pray this rather stupid prayer and the Holy Spirit takes it and prays it the way it's supposed to be prayed. <laughs> Thank God for the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Okay. Watching there Keep on the alert. Don't be caught like the disciples who had a demon-possessed boy, but they hadn't done their prayer. He didn't mean they should start praying then. They had to be prayed up when they met the boy. Don't be caught unprepared. Watch and pray. Pray without ceasing. I used to wonder how you would do that. How do you pray without ceasing? And then I observed now that people can text without ceasing. So, if people can text without ceasing, I think they, how many think they could have prayed without ceasing? I mean, this is possible. Watch and pray. Four times in Scripture we have that. And then perseverance. Don't quit. I've already talked about that. For all saints, the Lord's Prayer has plural pronouns. It doesn't have any singular pronouns. We're in this together. We should be praying for each other constantly and persistently with entreaty. Christ wanted the disciples to pray for him. And of course, he didn't get their prayers. And he did his homework and he went out poised and ready to meet the battle. You don't see any struggle once he gets out of that garden. But if you read what happened when he went into the garden, it says he was heavy and sore uh, I forget the words, but if you look up the words, it means he was he was filled with horror and terror, just like I would be if somebody said they we're going to crucify me. Jesus felt the same way. And it says he was deeply depressed. Do you think about Jesus being depressed? He went into that garden filled with horror and terror and depression. And he went out of that garden. That was all gone. He faced that cross with poise and with dignity and with calmness. You didn't see any struggle. The battles are won in the prayer closet. That's where they're won. That's where they're won. The disciples didn't pray. And you saw what for a flustered bunch they became. They weren't ready. And then do it with thanksgiving. That's not in this passage. But it says, be careful for nothing but in everything. By prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. It talks about giving thanks in all things. William Law, who wrote that book, A Serious Call Devout and Holy Life, and you should buy copies and give one to every person to read. It's a wonderful book. He says this, would you know who is the greatest saint in the world? It's not the one who prays the most or fasts the most. It's not he who gives the most. It's not those that are eminent for temperance, chastity, and justice. But is he who is always thankful to God, who wills everything that God wills, who receives everything as an instant of God's goodness and has a heart always ready to praise God for it? Matthew Henry one time was robbed and somebody said to Matthew Henry, what do you have to say about your robbery? He said, I'm thankful you're thankful. Yeah, he said, I'm thankful that uh, I never was robbed before. I'm thankful they robbed me instead of somebody else. I'm thankful they took my money, but not my life. I'm thankful that they took everything I had, but it wasn't much. (laughs) he, (laughs) He had a whole list of things he was thankful for in that experience. Thankfulness leaves no room for discouragement. I once read a legend of a man who found the barn where the devil kept his seeds ready to be sown in the human heart. And on finding the seeds of discouragement more numerous than the others, I learned that those seeds could be made to grow anywhere. The seeds of discouragement. When Satan was questioned about this, he reluctantly admitted that there was one place. In which he could never get the seeds of discouragement to grow. And where is that? Satan replied sadly. In the heart of a grateful man. So we're to pray with thanksgiving. So we've talked about the, our enemy. We've talked about our equipment. We've talked about our energy. I pray that all of you. I pray that the history of this congregation will be different from the history of most congregations that start on a high point, and you see it happen over and over again. Ephesians 4 pictures this church starting here and growing and growing and growing until it comes to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. But it'll only happen if you apply this passage. Shall we bow our heads for prayer? Our Father, we thank you this morning that we have all the resources of heaven behind us, but help us to be careful that we make the kind of decisions... That all of heaven is ready to support. Help us to be wise. Help us to know that even if churches say things they shouldn't say. We're quick to detect it. And refuse to believe it. And certainly not act upon it. Help every person in this congregation to finish successfully. In Jesus name we pray. Amen. Could we conclude by singing 499. And somebody else can come here and lead it.